I was thinking about status and status symbols. It's a big thing in our world. It's usually captured in questions and observations, something like this. What's your family history? Where do you live? Where do you vacation? What kind of clothes or shoes do you wear? Where do you shop? What kind of music do you listen to? What do you drive? Where did you or do you go to school? What do you do for a living? Where do you work? What team do you root for? What church do you go to? What church do you pastor? And then the inevitable question. How many people go to the church that you pastor? As if that is the ultimate sign of success, right? I heard a pastor who was asked that question and he said, uh, somebody asked him, and this is typical of pastors, you know, pastors want to know how many people go to your church, how many people, and so the response of this pastor was, well, we have between 15 and 20,000, and the other pastor was shocked until the pastor explained, no, I met between 15 people and 20,000, somewhere between those numbers, <laughs> right? Because we're we're, we put a different value on someone if we think they have more success in numbers or influence and the like. Are you single? Are you married? If so, how long have you been married? And how many times? <laughs> how much do you make a year? What is your net worth? Oh, we could go on and on and on and on, right? And we all kind of wonder about these things because, let's be honest, some of the answers to these questions do reveal some things about people, right? I mean, there are some legitimate questions, but there's often value judgments that are placed on these things that, you know, we put so much stock in the outward and God could care less about it. God said to the prophet, you judge by outward appearance. That's not how, how I judge. I judge by the heart. And, Dave, and, and God, when he used David and many unexpected people throughout the history of redemption, takes unlikely candidates to allow them to change the world. Nick Vujicic, who has no arms and no legs, has probably reached more people than any evangelist could imagine. There are people who will line up for miles to, to give a hug to Nick Vujicic, who has no arms and no legs, and they weep. I, I've seen video of hardened prisoners who he'll go to a jail a prison and he'll speak and they're weeping as they hold him he has to be propped up on a table to speak to them but he speaks with boldness and courage about hope and we're in a world that is so desperate for hope and that hope is found in a person his name is jesus he made himself nothing to come and make us everything in Philippians 3, 7, and 8, in the New Living Translation, Paul says, I once thought that these things were valuable, my pedigree, my tribal affiliation, my good works, my profession as a proud Pharisee, my strictness according to the law, my zeal, my religious outward work. I once thought all these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless, when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage, so that I can gain Jesus Christ.
I bought a Maserati when I was about 20, 21. It was a red bi-turbo. It wasn't one of like the, you know, the real, real cool ones, but it was cool enough because it said Maserati on it. <laughs> and so my theme song was, My Maserati does 185. Some of you remember that song. Some of you don't, which makes it extra bad. But anyway, so the, here's an embarrassing profession, profession from Pastor Michael. I was out of high school, and I wanted to show how successful I was, so I would drive my Maserati past my high school. You see me? You see me now? Problem was, Nobody saw me because all the people I went to high school with were gone because I was now 20 or 21. And but we do such silly things to impress people. Somebody sees a Maserati logo. Ooh, who are you? <laughs> right? We can get impressed by these kinds of things. Our title on a business card, our degrees, etc., it's not that these things are bad, but if you live and die by them, if this is the way that you've decided to define yourself, you're going to find that that will ultimately not produce. You may not have that job forever. You may not have that car forever or those looks forever. See, beauty and all of that doesn't last what lasts is a person who's of noble character. You're going to find in this section the word called is used nine times. When God called the Corinthians, there were not many of noble status. The Corinthians were obsessed, obsessed with their social standing. And they would even hyper-spiritualize things like celibacy and singleness. Paul's been arguing that a Christian is not defined by singleness or marriage, and he'll get into other things. He's not defined, she's not defined by ethnicity or social status or marital status or finances or career. The biggest issue in the Christian life right now, once you, begin, you get saved, is this. How will I use my life for his glory? How will I be a change agent where I find myself now? How can I use my life so that he can receive the glory and other people can see the hope of Christ. What situation do I find myself in where I can be a blessing? As we've been looking at marriage and singleness, we've argued that there is no perfect marriage. <laughs> There's no perfect mate that you're going to find. If you've been looking for Mr. or Mrs. Perfect, rot's a ruck. <laughs> they don't exist. Because every one of us carries our baggage and our dysfunction into marriage. That's the place where we get tested the most. And, you know, people look for the perfect job, the perfect this, the perfect that. There is no perfect. There's only one that's perfect, and his name is Jesus. And if you have him in your life, he'll make all the difference in your life. And so Paul says, only, 1 Corinthians 7, 17, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk, and thus I direct in all the churches. Paul's been talking about the word called, that's kaleo in Greek, and notice the word assigned in the New American Standard. 
God has assigned, notice the emphasis on the individual, each one, God has called each, and in this manner, let him walk. When God called the Corinthians or the Coronians, he called you right where you were. In that job, in that relationship, in that city, in that spot, in that household. God knew exactly where you were when he called you. He knew what you were up to. He knew what your profession was. He knew what your struggles were. And he called you right there to himself. Called you into fellowship. He knew where you were. And our temptation once we get called into fellowship is sometimes we think we need to change the outward. But the Lord has an assignment for you. And generally speaking, he's going to ask you to be a change agent right where you are. In fact, maybe he saved you in the country you're in, in the family you're in, in the city you're in, in the company you're in, because he has a divine assignment for you to be a change agent among those people where you already are. It's not a surprise to him that you have the job that you have, that you live in the city that you live in, that you have the family that you do. This is what God does he often strategically, and this is in his sovereignty and his providence, does that so that we can reach others. And if we run away from that, we get, sometimes we can get things confused. Now, don't get me wrong. If you have a job, you become a Christian, and your job is sinful, or you are compromising in some way, then you need to leave that. I'm talking about things that are not sinful or hurtful. This is the general rule that Paul lays down that, You've been given an assignment right where you are. Millennials are those who are born between 1977 and 1997. And I know if you're a millennial, you're probably sick and tired of people saying, Millennials. 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 Well, look, if you're a parent of millennials, then maybe we need to talk as well, right? But anyway, they're born between 77 and 97. Millennials expect to stay in a job for less than three years. That means that they would have 15 to 20 jobs over the course of their working lives. You know that over your working life, from 25 to 65, you'll spend almost 100,000 hours at your job. So your job is a big deal, right? What you do is a big deal. But this is, this is the kind of the pattern. Is it's one thing to another to another to another I was uh, commiserating with an old preacher, a lot of wisdom, and I would tell him, you know, man, it seems like in the city of Corona, people come and go. People come to a church, and they leave a church, and they, you know, it, there's this, it's a very mobile society, and it's even true in the church world. There's not a lot of people who stay and are part of the core, and, and he said, Pastor Michael, <laughs> most people don't even know what they're looking for. And I think sometimes we move around a lot because we don't even know what we're looking for. Can I ask you, are you a runner? Do you run from trouble? You know, a lot of us, uh, because of whatever dysfunction and pain we've had in our past, our first inclination is to run. When we're in a fight with our spouse, when we're in a difficult spot at work, the solution is to run away. It's easier just to leave that in our wake and not deal with it anymore. But God is teaching me, and maybe he's teaching you, 
stick to itiveness. To press on. To not always be looking for the escape sign or the exit sign well lit so I can get out of this one to go to the next one. And this is what happens in a lot of relationships. We think the grass is greener on the other side. You've heard that before, right? And I heard a pastor one time say, if the grass looks greener on the other side, you better water yours more. Amen? Maybe that's part of the problem. Now, Paul will acknowledge that life is complicated. There are complex situations. And he's already said that if an unbelieving spouse wants to leave and divorces you, let him leave. You're free. There are complex situations. There are reasons why situations may change. Job changes happen. Sometimes, you know, a spouse leaves you or something happens. There's some unpredictable things about life. And there are, there are exceptions to the rule. But generally speaking, Paul would argue through the Spirit that if that's not the case, then you need to remain and stay and try to be a change agent right where you are. See, it's not necessarily about your situation changing. It's about you changing. And it is much easier for us to put the blame on somebody else. If this would only change, if they would only change, and some of that may have merit. But what God's going to say to you, are you ready? Is I want you to change. I want you to change so that you can be a change agent where I've placed you because I have a divine assignment on your life. And until I tell you to move on or go do something else, I want you to be a change agent right where you are. Can I say this as a pastor to you? We need you to be a Christian right where you are. This is going to be the key of revival in America. It's not us running into the church building and cloistering together, you know, and singing our songs and then we go out into the world and nobody knows we're a believer. No, we need you to be a change agent where you live, in your family, in your company, to be bold, strategic, of course, compassionate, wise, but yet bold. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. The Lord's placed you there for a reason. If we are going to have a revival in America, it's, it's going to be because the church goes out into the world on fire with the gospel. Do you believe that? So we do multiple Bible studies in restaurants. Why do we do them in restaurants? Because Pastor Michael likes food. But there's another reason. Oftentimes in a restaurant, people wonder what we're doing. And we've had all kinds of opportunities out in public to minister to people. Sometimes another believer will walk by one of our Bible studies. Amen! Right? Sometimes we've been praying in a restaurant and a hand will be placed on a shoulder. Make you a little nervous because your eyes are closed and it's a public place. But then we'll find another believer heard us praying and they're encouraged just by the fact that we're out there studying the Bible. We've had business owners open up their place knowing that we're going to have a Bible study and they're like, cool, do it. You see, we need to have a missional attitude. We need to have a gospel-oriented life. Do you know later Paul will say, get this, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I'm still trying in my life to really have that missional attitude that everything I do is for the sake of the gospel. That's why Paul said in verse 16, how do you know, O wife, whether you will what? 
save your husband. That's salvation. How do you know, O husband, talking to the ones who are married to unbelievers, whether you will what? Save your wife. How do you know? I want you to be an ambassador right there. I want you to impact people right there. Look at 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his believing wife. The unbelieving wife sanctified through her believing husband. See, Paul's been saying that the situations of life, though they are difficult, are really ordained by God. And God wants you to impact those people right where you are. So the first option shouldn't be running. The first option should be thinking about how I can redeem this situation. And these are difficult things, right? Because sometimes it does seem easier if we could just go. And there are times when God illumines a new door. Some of you have moved from you know, uh, employment in the world to ministry. Certainly, God does open new doors there. Sometimes you've had, you've, some of you have been abandoned by a spouse who said, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I don't like your Christianity. They cheated on you. Paul says in those situations, you're free. But he has a plan for us. And the, the hardest thing for us is when we're weighing a couple of options. Option A, option B. What do I do now? Even maybe both of them look relatively good. How do you know what you should do in these situations? I was talking to a brother on the phone. He's got this kind of situation right before him. And we were praying, and here's a verse that just came to me in the moment. Train up a child in the way that he should go. Proverbs 22.6. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. The majority of scholars believe the way that he should go is not just make sure he's a Christian. Proverbs 22, 6, the way that he should go, the way that she should go, is the bent, the gifting of that particular child. There's a way that you should go in this sense, that God has given you a gifting and, and abilities and a calling, and it may be for business, and it may be that you have been called to be in ministry or some other profession or whatever, but there's a way that you should go, and that way is usually put into you at a very young age. And it's usually affirmed or confirmed as life goes on. Now, Paul was going in a certain direction and God changed his way. He was on the road to Damascus going to persecute Christians and Jesus called him right there. Called him to be an apostle and redirected him. And that certainly does happen. But for those of you who are believers, ask yourself some of these questions. What is the way, the gifting that God has put on me? Has he put gifts of compassion, hospitality, teaching, whatever? We are told in Scripture, if you have a gift from God, use it. Engage it. I was watching uh, some Christian television the other night, and there was a story of a madame. She was running a house of prostitution, and she went from a madame to a missionary. And obviously her previous life was very sinful, and now she is ministering to many, many women uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is also stories that happen where, you know, somewhere in life, maybe you were in a situation where you were so far from God and God redeemed that and now he's put you somewhere else. That's where he may take your past and what happened to you in the past, the sinful things that you did, and allow you to minister right there to people who are still in it. He can comfort you 
and then allow you to comfort others with the comfort with which you've been comforted by God. He can bring you back to mission fields that you've been delivered out of, and you've got to be wise about the timing of such things, right? Not when you're going to be tempted to go back. But once you are secure in Christ, he may take you right back to that kind of situation to tell those people there's hope for them because if he saved you out of it and you were the ringleader, then there's hope for them. In the early church, when the Apostle Paul, who was first Saul, was being introduced by, to other believers, other believers were like, uh, no, thank you. I'm not shaking his hand, and I'm certainly not going to give him a holy kiss. He persecutes the church. I know about him. There's a wanted poster that's been placed in all the churches. This is Saul of Tarsus, wicked, evil man. No, thank you. And there were others who had to convince Christians that Saul was okay. He had met the living God. He had been born again to a living hope. Nevertheless, NIV 17 Each one should retain the place in life the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This rule I lay down in all the churches. This is not ad hoc advice. This is true for all the churches. God has a divine assignment and a divine endowment in your life. He has called you and there's even the concept that he has placed you. He has assigned you to be an ambassador of hope where you are. So ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Who am I trying to please? What am I trying to accomplish? Who am I trying to impress? Some people will live their whole lives to try to please somebody else. Their whole career path, their schooling, will be because of the pressure of somebody else. How about you let God decide that? And we as parents, you know, those of us who had athletic, uh, you know, dreams, sometimes we force our kids to play a certain sport. You're going to be a baseball player, all three of mine. From early times in the crib, I was doing reaction drills in their cribs. So I had Dodger stuff, you know, the little, you know, the little thing that circles around the babies. It It was just all Dodger stuff to impress it in them early. And then I throw peas, frozen peas into the crib and work on reaction time. Yeah, going to be a shortstop. Just kidding about the peas. But I did think about it. Anyway, God has a calling on your life. And your calling is a divine assignment. And your job is to walk out or work out what he's worked in. So this is Ephesians 2.10. You're familiar with it. It says, we are his workmanship. We've been created or recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. God prepares good works. We are to walk them out or work them out. Walk out what God has done in your life, where he's placed you, what he's put on your heart. As God has assigned or called each in this manner, let him walk. That's the word peripateo. It means live. And so this is the direction I give for all the churches. As God has assigned each one, so walk. Sometimes God uses you remaining in a situation to do his best chiseling in your life. Amen? You're in a difficult situation. Oh, there was no amen there. I'm not going to amen that. 
not going to amen something that talks about difficult situations. But sometimes, have you noticed that you're in a situation, and it may not be the most pleasant, but that's where God chisels you the most. He refines the rough edges. He teaches you to love as he loves. He teaches you to press on and walk by faith and live by the power of the Holy Spirit and walk in him firmly grounded and rooted. Was any man called 18 already circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Now Paul will use circumcision and slavery as two examples in the ancient world and there could be modern examples here but this divides the, the Jewish and Gentile world. Jews were circumcised, sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Gentiles were uncircumcised. Remember when David said, we're not going to allow this uncircumcised Philistine to talk to the armies of the Lord like this? And so some people who had grown up Jewish, they were circumcised on the eighth day. But in the Roman world, circumcision was seen as grotesque and ridiculous. And so get this, some Jews wanting to be accepted in Roman and in Greek culture went through a de-circumcision surgery. Because in that world, if you went into the bathhouses or you worked out in the gymnasium, kind of like today, and let's say that you went into the showers, they would be embarrassed if they had the sign of circumcision. So some of them literally went through a surgical procedure to try to show that they were not circumcised. Why? Because they didn't want to be laughed at in the Roman world. They didn't want to be laughed at by the Greeks. They didn't want people to say, <laughs> look at that person. And this is the pressure that we feel in terms, of, you know, we talk a lot about peer pressure in junior high and high school. It's real. There's all kinds of things that people will do to try to shame an individual. It could be something silly like the shoes that they wear or the jeans that they bought. They're not the certain jeans that are in, right? And there's all this pressure, and we as human beings get sucked into it, whether we're kids or we're at midlife or we're older. These, there's pressure to conform, pressure to be cool. And the Hebrew people were under this kind of pressure. And so some people put themselves through pain and surgery, all to be acceptable in a secular world. And Paul says, circumcision is nothing, 19. Isn't that shocking for a Jewish Pharisee to say, this is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing but what matters is keeping the commandments of God now what do you think Paul's talking about you think he's talking about the Mosaic law I doubt it I think Paul's talking about the commandment to love God and love your neighbor as yourself if we could do those two things we would not be writing people about peripheral junk and garbage we would accept people. We would love people just as they are. We, we would love the way God has loved us when he accepted us in the beloved. This is what the body of Christ should be embracing that makes us different. 
Wherever we've come from, whatever our pain or our scars or our brokenness may be, we are accepted in the beloved. Amen? Turn to Romans 15, just a book back. Romans 15. We shared this in a uh, devotion as a staff this week. Here's what Romans 15, 1 says. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, Romans 15, 1, and not just please ourselves. Each of us, Romans 15, 2, is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, as it is written, 15.3, the reproaches of those who reproach you, reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance, and this is what we need to love people well, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Keep reading. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement Grant to you to be of the same mind. Grant you unity with one another according to Christ Jesus. So that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go all the way to verse 13. Now may the God of hope, he's the God who gives hope and encouragement. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you brother or sister, may or will abound in hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. There's many times in my life when I say, Lord, I can't do that. I can't do what you've called me to do. Turn back to 1 Corinthians. I don't have the goods. I don't have the means. I don't have the power. Captain, I don't have the power. <laughs> A little Star Trek for you there. And this is where God says, you're right, you don't, but I do. And just ask me, and I will fulfill a scripture that I gave Paul. You can do all things, not some, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Paul says, look, the outward signs of Jew-Gentile circumcision, uncircumcision are nothing. For in Christ Jesus, Galatians 5, 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. In Galatians 6, 15 and 16, he says, neither circumcision is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now go, says Paul, through the Spirit and love people. And so let's wind it down as we look at the final verses. Verse 20, 1 Corinthians 7. Let each man, each person, remain, that's the present imperative, in that condition in which he was called. 20. Each one should remain in the situation, NIV, which he was when, when God called him. Stay there. Unless God is giving you a clear biblical reason to be out of it, and confirming it by his Holy Spirit and good counsel, Paul says stay. Now, let me qualify. You are not being asked to stay in an abusive situation. You are not being asked to stay to be somebody's punching bag. You are not being asked to stay in a dangerous situation where there's drug abuse and the like. Life is complicated, and in those situations, 
You need biblical counsel and the church to back you. And if you're in that spot, please come and talk to us. We're not talking about that. But we are talking about, generally speaking, situations that we'd prefer that they were different. Were you called while a slave? Talk about a difficult spot. One-third of the population of Corinth was in some form of servitude. Paul says, were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. Now, someone in the ancient world might say, well, what do you mean, don't worry about it, Paul? <laughs> I'm the one that's in some form of servitude. And by the way, even though ancient slavery was different than the plight of modern slavery, uh, ancient slavery was often voluntary. People would sell them into themselves into slavery to pay off debts. Sometimes people chose to stay in a servant-master relationship because they loved their master. But there were abuses as well. And slaves were seen as a person who had no value in many circles. The, you know, the, the higher established people would look down on slaves and they wouldn't pay attention to you if you came and served them or washed their feet or whatever. Some of you have seen those snooty English shows, you know, where the, the servants are over in the kitchen and the, the, the people, you know, the, the ritzy, proper people are there and, oh, bring me this or bring me that. And they, they look down on people like that. That's certainly what servants went through at this time and even worse. But Paul says, if you were called while a slave, one-third of the Corinthian population in some form of servitude, Another third of them apparently had been set free because it was supposed to be like a temporary situation. Paul says, don't worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. Paul says, look, if you're in a situation right now and there's no way out, then don't worry about it. Do the best you can to serve Jesus there. But if you can get out, then get out. Paul wrote to, uh, I think it's Philemon, about his slave Onesimus. And Paul urged Philemon in the, for the sake of the gospel to set him free. And I believe that wherever Christianity is practiced and its implications are practiced, there is not going to be this kind of attitude. It's flat out wrong. But it was the rea reality of the ancient world is that many people were in a servant situation. They were slaves. And so Paul says, look, if you can become free, then, then do it. If the door opens, then take it, but, but don't worry about it. For he who was called in the Lord, 22, while a slave, is the Lord's freedman. See that word there, brothers and sisters, freedman? It's exactly how it looks. This is a person who had been a slave and was set free. They're a freedman, a technical term for someone who was once a slave. Slaves were uh, often known as the slave of so-and-so. They're the servant of so-and-so. And Paul says, no, you have a new category now. If the Lord called you while a slave, you are the Lord's freedman. Because if the Son sets you free, you are what? Free indeed. So even though your circumstances may be difficult, think about it. Think about a Christian today, this morning, in a persecuted environment who may be in prison for their faith in Jesus Christ. You know right now there are people in prison simply because of their faith in Christ. 
Some people find themselves in a situation where they don't have the freedom that they would like to have because of the country they were born in. Or Christianity is not accepted there. And Paul would say the same thing. That's where God called you. If you can be free, be free. But if not, you are the Lord's freedman. And so likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. So if you're free, if you're not in some sort of form of servitude, you're still Christ's slave anyway. And then Galatians 3.28, think of it in these terms. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not saying in Galatians 3.28 that once you become a Christian, you're no longer male or female. That's ridiculous. Paul is not saying in Galatians 3.28 that once you become a Christian, you're no longer from a Jewish family or a Gentile family. It doesn't mean that just because you got saved as a Jewish person, you should stop celebrating Passover or eating matzah ball soup. You can still do that. It just means that you've come to know the Messiah, but you're still Jewish. Or you've come to know the Messiah, and you're still from a Gentile family, but you are Christ's servant. Amen? Dr. Walter Martin <laughs> said he was at New York University, and there was a, a man, he was a Jewish evangelist. He had come to Jesus Christ, he said, but he was, he was just a very coarse, radical preacher. And he would go up and down the streets, in front of New York University, and he said he would stir the crowd into a frenzy. He said he would chew them up one side and down the other. You need to come to Jesus Christ and be saved, or you're going to be judged, and he would give it to them. And then Dr. Martin said one day he was walking by, and he said he had whipped up the crowd into the, uh, to a frenzy. And he said, all of a sudden, he said, look, there's someone who can answer your questions. And he pointed at Dr. Martin, and Dr. Martin was like, uh, <laughs> He said he whipped them up, into a frenzy, and now he pointed them in my direction. What was I going to do? Quote, Mary had a little lamb. Mary had a little lamb, little lamb. And he said, look, Dr. Martin in his wonderful style, look, calm down, calm down. Everybody's all angry. Don't believe in Jesus, you're going to go to hell. What, what do you mean? Calm down. <laughs> Dr. Martin goes, look, you can go to heaven God's way. You don't have to stop being Jewish to become a Christian. You can go to heaven God's way or go to hell your own way. And then he kept on walking. That's a political correctness at its best right there. Paul says, look, you were bought with a price. Think about this slave imagery because oftentimes slaves could be purchased with a redemption price out of the slave market. Someone could come and buy, them, buy their freedom. He says, look, you were bought with a price. Jesus Christ came and paid the redemption price to buy you out of the slave market of sin and death to set you free. And if you're free in Christ, then don't go back to being in bondage to the world. Don't, look at 23, don't become slaves of people. Don't become slaves of men. You've been purchased by Christ. Don't live your life in slavery to the world's system, the world's value judgments. Don't live and die with how they categorize you because look, the fact that you're a Christian already gets you going on the wrong foot. Have you noticed? A Christian. 
when I was a young uh, up-and-coming pastor, I had a high school friend. His dad was a, a walking comedian. He was really funny. And he watched us through all of our years of dysfunction as high schoolers. I was completely lost. My buddies were lost. And I had become a Christian. And I said to this man, I'll never forget this, I said to him, I've become a Christian and I want to be a pastor. And he went, oh no! That's the worst thing you could do. Please, don't become a pastor. That's the worst profession on the planet. That's what he said to me. Talk about being encouraged in your calling, huh? Please don't do it. He was begging me not to become a pastor. Do you know why? Because he, he had an idea of what a pastor was from some television that we could see today, right? If you're going to become that, please, he was trying to talk me out of it. And I, I have to be honest, I, I felt a bit embarrassed because that's what he thought of pastors in Christianity. Thank God that he calls us despite sometimes the pressure we feel from others. And so finally he says, brethren, brothers and sisters, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. See that remain with God? That means don't give up. It's always too soon to give up. And I know for a lot of you, you know, it's hard. You're, you're in a setting right now, some of you, where that's all you've thought about. It's, you've been thinking of ways to give up and get out. And that's the enemy. And that's not what God has for you. Can you find a place of contentment where you are? You know, Paul had said, I have learned the secret of contentment. He had to learn it and... I think we're all still trying to learn it, right? Learn how to be content in the circumstances you are. Do you know that Paul said he had learned the secret of contentment in Philippians 4, and he wrote the letter from prison? I've learned the secret of contentment. I've learned how to abound and have plenty and how to be abased. I've learned the secret of contentment. Are you ready for it? The secret of contentment is Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. See, Paul was so convinced of the sovereignty of God that he could even see his prison situation as there's some reason that God has me here right now. And Paul wrote four prison epistles that we treasure while he was in prison. Your identity is in Jesus Christ it doesn't mean that you won't be lazy or ambitionless. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying don't have ambition, don't have goals, don't have drive. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying please be content. And if you don't have some biblical reason to leave, you're not being shown that by the Spirit of God, why don't you be a new you in that situation? How, you, how about you be a new creation in your old job? How about you be a fresh new you in a stale marriage? How about instead of waiting for the other person to do something, you're the person that says, this is what I'm going to do by the power of Christ. Amen? Father, thank you so much for this 
morning. Thank you for Jamie's testimony. Thank you for this wonderful church family. They are a blessing. I know that they are hungry to hear from you, even when the content is not always the most comfortable, but it is encouraging to us that you have an assignment for us, Lord. And we need some, many of us need some fresh eyes. We need you to soften our heart and to give us fresh eyes in our situation. Your eyes. You keep your head and heart bowed. If you've not met Jesus, the God of hope, you walked here into this building for a reason. He had something he wanted you to hear. He's got a calling on your life and a divine assignment. But you have to say yes. He is not going to force you. You've got to decide, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you, and then show me what you'd have me to do. He has a purpose for your life. There's, this is not a purposeless existence, but you must know the one who has called you and assigned you. If you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, just cry out to him. Something this simple, but this profound. Lord Jesus, be my king, be my savior, be my Lord, be my friend. Thank you for dying on that cross for me. Thank you for purchasing my freedom. Thank you for setting me free. Pray it if it's you. I believe you died on that cross for me, and I believe you rose from the dead, and I repent of my sin, of doing it my own way, and I turn my life over to you and trust in you. Lord, for those who are articulating a prayer even in their heart, I pray you would just touch them. I pray that you would remove the burdens from their shoulders, give them strength for their situation, and give them hope. Lord, for those of us who are believers and we just need some fresh eyes and a softer heart, would you please do that? And may we be open to how you would move in our hearts and lives.